Chapter fourteen of Little Fuzzy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Fuzzy by H. Beam Piper. Chapter fourteen. They walked together, Frederick and Claudette Pendarvis, down through the roof garden toward the landing stage, and as she always did, Claudette stopped and cut a flower and fastened it in his lapel. Will the Fuzzies be in court? she asked. Oh, they'll have to be. I don't know about this morning. It'll be mostly formalities. He made a grimace that was half a frown and half a smile. I really don't know whether to consider them as witnesses or as exhibits, and I hope I'm not called on to rule on that, at least at the start. Either way, Coombs or Brannard would accuse me of showing prejudice. I want to see them. I've seen them on screen, but I want to see them for real. You haven't been in one of my courts for a long time, Claudette. If I find that they'll be brought in today, I'll call you. I'll even abuse my position to the extent of arranging for you to see them outside the courtroom. Would you like that? She'd love it. Claudette had a limitless capacity for delight in things like that. They kissed good-bye, and he went to where his driver was holding open the door of the air-car, and got in. At a thousand feet he looked back. She was still standing at the edge of the roof-garden, looking up. He'd have to find out whether it would be safe for her to come in. Max Fane was worried about the possibility of trouble, and so was Ian Ferguson, and neither was given to timorous imaginings. As the car began to descend toward the central court's buildings, he saw that there were guards on the roof, and they weren't just carrying pistols. He caught the glint of rifle-barrels and the twinkle of steel helmets. Then, as he came in, he saw that their uniforms were a lighter shade of blue than the constabulary wore. Ankle-boots and red-striped trousers, space-marines in dress blues. So Ian Ferguson had pushed the button. It occurred to him that Claudette might be safer here than at home. A sergeant and a couple of men came up as he got out. The sergeant touched the beak of his helmet in the nearest thing to a salute a Marine ever gave anybody in civilian clothes. "'Judge Pendarvis, good morning, sir.' "'Good morning, sergeant. Just why are Federation Marines guarding the court-building?' "'Standing by, sir. Orders of Commodore Napier. You'll find that Marshal Fane's people are in charge below decks, but Marine Captain Cassegra and Navy Captain Greibenfeld are waiting to see you in your office.' As he started toward the elevators, a big Zarathustra company car was coming in. The sergeant turned quickly, beckoned a couple of his men, and went towards it on the double. He wondered what Leslie Coombs would think about these marines. The two officers in his private chambers were both wearing sidearms. So also was Marshal Fane, who was with them. They all rose to greet him, sitting down when he was at his desk. He asked the same question he had of the sergeant above. "'Well, Constabulary Colonel Ferguson called Commodore Napier last evening and requested armed assistance, Your Honour,' the officer in Space Navy Black said. He suspected, he said, that the city had been infiltrated. In that, Your Honour, he was perfectly correct. Beginning Wednesday afternoon, Marine Captain Cassegra here, on Commodore Napier's orders, began landing a Marine infiltration force, preparatory to taking over the Residency.' That's been accomplished now. Commodore Napier is there, and both Resident General Emmett and Attorney General O'Brien are under arrest on a variety of malfeasance and corrupt practice charges. But that won't come into your Honour's court. They'll be sent back to Terra for trial. Then Commodore Napier's taken over the civil government. Well, say he's assumed control of it, pending the outcome of this trial. We want to know whether the present administration's legal or not. Then you won't interfere with the trial itself?' "'That depends, Your Honour. We're certainly going to participate.' He looked at his watch. "'You won't convene court for another hour. Then perhaps I'll have time to explain.' 
Max Fane met them at the courtroom door with a pleasant greeting. Then he saw Baby Fuzzy on Jack's shoulder and looked dubious. "'I don't know about him, Jack. I don't think he'll be allowed in the courtroom.' "'Nonsense,' Gus Brannard told him. "'I admit he is both a minor child and an incompetent aborigine, but he's the only surviving member of the family of the dissident Jane Doe, alias Goldilocks, and as such has an indisputable right to be present.' "'Well, just as long as you keep him from sitting on people's heads. "'Gus, you and Jack sit over there. "'Ben, you and Gerd find seats in the witness section.' "'It would be half an hour until court would convene, "'but already the spectators' seats were full, and so was the balcony. "'The jury-box on the left of the bench was occupied by a number of officers "'in navy black and marine blue. "'Since there would be no jury, they had apparently appropriated it for themselves. "'The press-box was jammed and bristling with equipment.' Baby was looking up interestedly at the big screen behind the judges' seats. While transmitting the court scene to the public, it also showed, like a non-reversing mirror, the same view to the spectators. Baby wasn't long in identifying himself in it, and waved his arms excitedly. At that moment there was a bustle at the door by which they had entered, and Leslie Coombs came in, followed by Ernst Mallon and a couple of his assistants, Ruth Ortheris, Juan Jimenez, and Leonard Kellogg. The last time he had seen Kellogg had been at George Lunt's complaint court, his face bandaged and his feet in a pair of borrowed moccasins, because his shoes, stained with the blood of Goldilocks, had been impounded as evidence. Coombs glanced toward the table where he and Brannard were sitting, caught sight of Baby waving to himself in the big screen, and turned to Fane with an indignant protest. Fane shook his head. Coombs protested again and drew another headshake. Finally he shrugged and led Kellogg to the table reserved for them, where they sat down. Once Pendarvis and his two associates, a short round-faced man on his right, a tall slender man with white hair and a black moustache on his left, was seated, the trial got under way briskly. The charges were read, and then Brannard, as the Kellogg prosecutor, addressed the court. Being known as Goldilocks, sapient member of a sapient race, willful and deliberate act of the said Leonard Kellogg, brutal and unprovoked murder. He backed away, sat at the edge of the table, and picked up Baby Fuzzy, fondling him while Leslie Coombs accused Jack Holloway of brutally assaulting the said Leonard Kellogg, and ruthlessly shooting down Kurt Borsch. "'Well, gentlemen, I believe we can now begin hearing the witnesses,' the Chief Justice said. "'Who will start prosecuting whom?' Gus handed Baby to Jack, and went forward. Coombs stepped up beside him. "'Your Honour, this entire trial hinges upon the question of whether a member of the species Fuzzy Fuzzy Holloway Zarathustra is or is not a sapient being,' Gus said. "'However, before any attempt is made to determine this question, we should first establish by testimony just what happened at Holloway's camp in Cold Creek Valley on the afternoon of June the 19th, Atomic Era 654. And once this is established, we can then proceed to the question of whether or not the said Goldilocks was truly a sapient being. "'I agree,' Coombe said equably. "'Most of these witnesses will have to be recalled to the stand later, but in general I think Mr. Brannard's suggestion will be economical of the Court's time.' "'Will Mr. Coombs agree to stipulate that any evidence tending to prove or disprove the sapience of fuzzies in general be accepted as proving or disproving the sapience of the being referred to as Goldilocks?' Coombs looked that over carefully, decided that it wasn't booby-trapped, and agreed. A deputy marshal went over to the witness-stand, made some adjustments, and snapped on a switch at the back of the chair. 
Immediately the two-foot globe in a standard behind it lit a clear blue. George Lunt's name was called, the lieutenant took his seat, and the bright helmet was let down over his head and the electrodes attached. The globe stayed a calm, untroubled blue while he stated his name and rank. Then he waited while Coombs and Brannard conferred. Finally, Brannard took a silver half-sol piece from his pocket, shook it between cupped palms, and slapped it onto his wrist. Coombs said, "'Heads!' and Brannard uncovered it, bowed slightly, and stepped back. "'Now, Lieutenant Lunt,' Coombs began, "'when you arrived at the temporary camp across the run from Holloway's camp, what did you find there?' Two dead people,' Lunt said. "'A Terran human, who had been shot three times through the chest, and a fuzzy, who had been kicked or trampled to death.' "'Your honours,' Coombs expostulated, "'I must ask that the witness be requested to rephrase his answer, "'and that the answer he has just made be stricken from the record. "'The witness, under the circumstances, has no right to refer to the Fuzzies as people.' "'Your honours,' Brannard caught it up, "'Mr. Coombs' objection is no less prejudicial. "'He has no right, under the circumstances, to deny that the Fuzzies be referred to as people.' This is tantamount to insisting that the witness speak of them as non-sapient animals. It went on like that for five minutes. Jack began doodling on a notepad. Baby picked up a pencil with both hands and began making doodles, too. They looked rather like the knots he had been learning to tie. Finally the court intervened and told Lunt to tell, in his own words, why he went to Holloway's camp, what he found there, what he was told, and what he did. There was some argument between Coombs and Brannard at one point about the difference between hearsay and Ray's guesti. When he was through, Coombs said, "'No questions.' "'Lieutenant, you placed Leonard Kellogg under arrest on a complaint of homicide by Jack Holloway. I take it that you considered this complaint a valid one?' "'Yes, sir. I believe that Leonard Kellogg had killed a sapient being. Only sapient beings bury their dead.' Ahmet Khadra testified, the two troopers who had come in the other car, and the men who had brought the investigative equipment and done the photographing at the scene testified. Brannard called Ruth Ortheris to the stand, and after some futile objections by Coombs, she was allowed to tell her own story of the killing of Goldilocks, the beating of Kellogg, and the shooting of Borsch. When she had finished, the Chief Justice rapped with his gavel. I believe that this testimony is sufficient to establish the fact that the being referred to as Jane Doe, alias Goldilocks, was in fact kicked and trampled to death by the defendant Leonard Kellogg, and that the Terran human known as Kurt Borsch was in fact shot to death by Jack Holloway. This being the case, we may now consider whether or not either or both of these killings constitute murder within the meaning of the law. It is now eleven-forty. We will adjourn for lunch, and court will reconvene at fourteen-hundred. There are a number of things, including some alterations to the courtroom, which must be done before the afternoon session. Yes, Mr. Brannard? Your Honours, there is only one member of the species Fuzzy Fuzzy Holloway Zarathustra at present in court, an immature and hence non-representative individual. He picked up Baby and exhibited him. If we are to take up the question of the sapience of this species or race, would it not be well to send for the Fuzzies now staying at the Hotel Mallory and have them on hand? "'Well, Mr. Brannard,' Pendarvis said, "'we will certainly want fuzzies in court, "'but let me suggest that we wait until after court reconvenes "'before sending for them. "'It may be that they will not be needed this afternoon. "'Anything else?' he tapped with his gavel. "'Then court is adjourned until fourteen hundred. "'Some alterations in the courtroom "'had been a conservative way of putting it. 
Four rows of spectator seats had been abolished, and the dividing rail moved back. The witness-chair, originally at the side of the bench, had been moved to the dividing rail, and now faced the bench, and a large number of tables had been brought in and ranged in an arc, with the witness-chair in the middle of it. Everybody at the tables could face the judges, and also see everybody else by looking into the big screen. A witness on the chair could also see the veridicator in the same way. Gus Brannard looked around when he ended with Jack, and swore softly. "'No wonder they gave us two hours for lunch. I wonder what the idea is.' Then he gave a short laugh. "'Look at Coombs. He doesn't like it a bit.' A deputy with a seating diagram came up to them. "'Mr. Brannard, you and Mr. Holloway over here, at this table,' he pointed to one a little apart from the others, at the extreme right, facing the bench. "'And Dr. Van Riebeek and Dr. Rainsford over here, please.' The court-crier's loudspeaker overhead gave two sharp whistles, and began, "'Now hear this! Now hear this! Court will convene in five minutes!' Brannard's head jerked around instantly, and Jack's eyes followed his. The court-crier was a Space Navy petty officer. "'What the devil is this?' Brannard demanded. "'A Navy court-martial?' "'That's what I've been wondering, Mr. Brannard,' the deputy said. "'They've taken over the whole planet, you know. "'Maybe we're in luck, Gus. "'I've always heard that if you're innocent you're better off before a court-martial, "'and if you're guilty you're better off in a civil court.' He saw Leslie Coombs and Leonard Kellogg being seated at a similar table at the opposite side of the bench— Apparently Coombs had also heard that. The seating arrangements at the other table seemed a little odd, too. Gerd van Riebeek was next to Ruth Ortheris, and Ernst Mallon was next to Ben Rainsford, with Juan Jimenez on his other side. Gus was looking up at the balcony. "'I'll bet every lawyer on the planet's taking this in,' he said. "'Uh-oh. See the white-haired lady in the blue dress, Jack? That's the Chief Justice's wife. This is the first time she's been in court for years.' "'Hear ye! Hear ye! Hear ye! Rise for the Honourable Court!' Somebody must have given the petty officer a quick briefing on courtroom phraseology. He stood up, holding Baby Fuzzy, while the three judges filed in and took their seats. As soon as they sat down, the Chief Justice rapped briskly with his gavel. "'In order to forestall a spate of objections, I want to say that these present arrangements are temporary, and so will be the procedures which will be followed.' We are not, at the moment, trying Jack Holloway or Leonard Kellogg. For the rest of this day, and, I fear, for a good many days to come, we will be concerned exclusively with determining the level of mentation of Fuzzy Fuzzy Holloway's Zarathustra. For this purpose, we are temporarily abandoning some of the traditional trial procedures. We will call witnesses, statements of purported fact will be made under veridication as usual. We will also have a general discussion, in which all of you at these tables will be free to participate. I and my associates will preside. As we can't have everybody shouting disputations at once, anybody wishing to speak will have to be recognised. At least I hope we will be able to conduct the discussion in this manner. You will all have noticed the presence of a number of officers from Xerxes' naval base, and I suppose you have all heard that Commodore Napier has assumed control of the civil government. Captain Greibenfeld, will you please rise and be seen?' He is here participating as Amicus Curiae, and I have given him the right to question witnesses, and to delegate that right to any of his officers he may deem proper. Mr. Coombs and Mr. Brannard may also delegate that right as they see fit. Coombs was on his feet at once. 
"'Your Honours, if we are now to discuss the sapiens question, I would suggest that the first item in our order of business be the presentation of some acceptable definition of sapiens. I should, for my part, very much like to know what it is that the Kellogg prosecution and the Holloway defence mean when they use that term.' "'That's it. They want us to define it.' Gerd van Riebeek was looking chagrined. Ernst Mallon was smirking. Gus Brannard, however, was pleased. "'Jack, they haven't any more damned definition than we do,' he whispered. Captain Greibenfeld, who had seated himself after rising at the request of the court, was on his feet again. "'Your Honours, during the past month we at Xerxes Naval Base have been working on exactly that problem. We have a very considerable interest in having the classification of this planet established, and we also feel that this may not be the last time a question of disputable sapience may arise.' I believe, Your Honours, that we have approached such a definition. However, before we begin discussing it, I would like the Court's permission to present a demonstration which may be of help in understanding the problems involved. Captain Greibenfeld has already discussed this demonstration with me, and it has my approval. Will you please proceed, Captain? the Chief Justice said. Greibenfeld nodded, and a Deputy Marshal opened the door on the right of the bench. Two spacemen came in, carrying cartons. One went up to the bench, the other started around in front of the tables, distributing small battery-powered hearing aids. "'Please put them in your ears and turn them on,' he said. "'Thank you.' Baby Fuzzy tried to get Jack's. He put the plug in his ear and switched on the power. Instantly he began hearing a number of small sounds he had never heard before, and Baby was saying to him, "'Ha-inta-sa-waka-aka, "'My God, Gus, he's talking!' "'Yes, I hear him. What do you suppose? Ultrasonic! God, why didn't we think of that long ago?' He snapped off the hearing aid. Baby Fuzzy was saying, "'Eek!' When he turned it on again, Baby was saying, "'Kakina Zaziba!' "'No, Baby, Pabby Jack doesn't understand. We'll have to be awfully patient and learn each other's language.' "'Puppy Jack!' Baby cried. "'Babi Zahinga! Puppy Jack Zazaga Hahisa!' That yeeking is just the audible edge of their speech. Bet we have a lot of transonic tones in our voices, too. Well, he can hear what we say. He's picked up his name and yours. Mr. Brannard, Mr. Holloway, Judge Pendarvis was saying, may we please have your attention? Now, have you all your earplugs in and turned on? Very well. Carry on, Captain. This time an ensign went out and came back with a crowd of enlisted men who had six fuzzies with them. They set them down in the open space between the bench and the arc of tables, and backed away. The Fuzzies drew together into a clump and stared about them, and he stared unbelievingly at them. They couldn't be. They didn't exist any more. But they were. Little Fuzzy and Mamma Fuzzy and Mike and Mitzi and Coco and Cinderella. Baby whooped something and leapt from the table, and Mamma came stumbling to meet him, clasping him in her arms. Then they all saw him and began clamouring. "'Puppy Jack! Puppy Jack!' He wasn't aware of rising and leaving the table. The next thing he realised, he was sitting on the floor, his family mobbing him and hugging him, gabbling with joy. Dimly he heard the gavel hammering, and the voice of Chief Justice Pendarvis. "'Court is recessed for ten minutes.' By that time Gus was with him, gathering the family up, they carried them over to their table. They stumbled and staggered when they moved, and that frightened him for a moment. Then he realised that they weren't sick or drugged. They'd just been in low G for a while, and hadn't become reaccustomed to normal weight. 
Now he knew why he hadn't been able to find any trace of them. He noticed that each of them was wearing a little shoulder-bag, a Marine Corps first-aid pouch, slung from a webbing strap. Why the devil hadn't he thought of making them something like that? He touched one and commented, trying to pitch his voice as nearly like theirs as he could. They all babbled in reply and began opening the little bags and showing him what they had in them. Little knives and miniature tools and bits of bright or coloured junk they'd picked up. Little Fuzzy produced a tiny pipe with a hard wood bowl and a little pouch of tobacco from which he filled it. Finally he got out a small lighter. "'Your honours, Gus shouted. "'I know court is recessed, but please observe what Little Fuzzy is doing.' While they watched, Little Fuzzy snapped the lighter and held the flame to the pipe bowl, puffing. Across on the other side, Leslie Coombs swallowed once or twice and closed his eyes. When Pendarvis rapped for attention and declared court reconvened, he said, "'Ladies and gentlemen, you have all seen and heard this demonstration of Captain Greibenfeld's. You have heard these fuzzies uttering what certainly sounds like meaningful speech, and you have seen one of them light a pipe and smoke. Incidentally, while smoking in court is discountenanced, we are going to make an exception during this trial in favour of fuzzies. Other people will please not feel themselves discriminated against.' That brought Coombes to his feet with a rush. He started around the table, and then remembered that under the new rules he didn't have to. "'Your honours, I objected strongly to the use of that term by a witness this morning. I must object even more emphatically to its employment from the bench. I have indeed heard these fuzzies make sounds which might be mistaken for words, but I must deny that this is true speech.' As to this trick of using a lighter, I will undertake in not more than thirty days to teach it to any Terran primate or Freyan Kolf. Greibenfeld rose immediately. Your Honours, in the past thirty days, while these fuzzies were at Xerxes' naval base, we have compiled a vocabulary of a hundred-odd fuzzy words, for all of which definite meanings have been established, and a great many more for which we have not as yet learned the meanings. We even have the beginning of a fuzzy grammar. As for this so-called trick of using a lighter, Little Fuzzy, we didn't know his name then and referred to him as M2, learned that for himself by observation. We didn't teach him to smoke a pipe, either. He knew that before we had anything to do with him. Jack rose while Greibenfeld was still speaking. As soon as the Space Navy captain had finished, he said, "'Captain Greibenfeld, I want to thank you and your people for taking care of the Fuzzies.' and I'm very glad you learned how to hear what they're saying, and a thank you for all the nice things you gave them. But why couldn't you have let me know they were safe? I haven't been very happy this last month, you know. I know that, Mr. Holloway, and if it's any comfort to you, we were all very sorry for you, but we could not take the risk of compromising our secret intelligent agent in the company's science centre, the one who smuggled the fuzzies out the morning after their escape." He looked quickly across in front of the bench to the table at the other end of the ark. Kellogg was sitting with his face in his hands, oblivious to everything that was going on, but Leslie Coombe's well-disciplined face had broken, briefly, into a look of consternation. By the time you and Mr. Brannard and Marshal Fane arrived with an order of the court for the Fuzzies' recovery, they had already been taken from Science Centre, and were on a Navy landing craft for Xerxes. We couldn't do anything without exposing our agent— that, I am glad to say, is no longer a consideration. Well, Captain Greibenfeld, the Chief Justice said, I assume you mean to introduce further testimony about the observations and studies made by your people on Xerxes. For the record, we'd like to have it established that they were actually taken there, and when, and how. Yes, Your Honour, 
"'If you will call the fourth name on the list I gave you, and allow me to do the questioning, we can establish that.' The Chief Justice picked up a paper. "'Lieutenant J. G. Ruth Ortheris, TFN Reserve,' he called out. This time Jack Holloway looked up into the big screen in which he could see everybody. Gerd van Riebeek, who had been trying to ignore the existence of the woman beside him, had turned to stare at her in amazement. Coombe's face was ghastly for an instant, then froze into corpse-like immobility. Ernst Mallon was dithering in incredulous anger. Beside him Ben Rainsford was grinning in just as incredulous delight. As Ruth came around in front of the bench, the Fuzzies gave her an ovation. They remembered and liked her. Gus Brannard was gripping his arm and saying, "'Oh, brother, this is it, Jack. It's all over but shooting the cripples.' Lieutenant J. G. Ortheris, under a calmly blue globe, testified to coming to Zarathustra as a Federation Naval Reserve officer, recalled to duty with intelligence, and taking a position with the company. "'As a regularly qualified doctor of psychology, I worked under Dr. Mallon in this scientific division, and also with the school department and the juvenile court. At the same time, I was regularly transmitting reports to Commander Alborg, the chief of intelligence on Xerxes.' The object of this surveillance was to make sure that the Zarathustra Company was not violating the provisions of their charter or Federation law. Until the middle of last month I had nothing to report, beyond some rather irregular financial transactions involving Resident General Emmett. Then, on the evening of June 15, that was when Ben had transmitted the tape to Juan Jimenez, she described how it had come to her attention. As soon as possible, I transmitted a copy of this tape to Commander Alborg. The next night, I called Xerxes from the screen in Dr. Van Riebeek's boat, and reported what I'd learned about the Fuzzies. I was then informed that Leonard Kellogg had gotten hold of a copy of the Holloway-Rainsford tape, and had alerted Victor Grego, that Kellogg and Ernst Mallon were being sent to Beta Continent with instructions to prevent publication of any report claiming sapience for the Fuzzies, and to fabricate evidence to support an accusation that Dr. Rainsford and Mr. Holloway were perpetrating a deliberate scientific hoax. "'Here I'll have to object to this, Your Honour,' Coombe said, rising. "'This is nothing but hearsay. This is part of a Navy intelligence situation estimate given to Lieutenant Ortheris, based on reports we had received from other agents.' Captain Greibenfeld said. "'She isn't the only one we have on Zarathustra, you know, Mr. Coombs. If I hear another word of objection to this officer's testimony from you, I'm going to ask Mr. Brannard to subpoena Victor Grego and question him under veridication about it.' "'Mr. Brannard will be more than happy to oblige, Commander,' Gus said loudly and distinctly. Coombs sat down hastily. "'Well, Lieutenant Ortheris, this is most interesting.' But at the moment, what we're trying to establish is how these fuzzies got to Xerxes' naval base, the chubby associate justice Ruith put in. I'll try to get them there as quickly as possible, Your Honour, she said. On the night of Friday the 22nd, the fuzzies were taken from Mr. Holloway and brought into Mallory's port. They were turned over by Mohammed O'Brien to Juan Jimenez, who took them to Science Centre and put them in cages in a back room of his office. They immediately escaped. I found them the next morning, and was able to get them out of the building, and to turn them over to Commander Alborg, who had come down from Xerxes to take personal charge of the fuzzy operation. I will not testify as to how I was able to do this. I am at present, and was then, an officer of the Terran Federation Armed Forces, and courts have no power to compel a Federation officer to give testimony involving breach of military security. 
I was informed, through my contact in Mallorysport from time to time, of the progress of the work of measuring the Fuzzies' mental level there. I was able to pass on suggestions occasionally. Any time any of these suggestions was based on ideas originating with Dr. Mallon, I was careful to give him full credit. Mallon looked singularly unappreciative. Brannard got up. "'Before this witness is excused, I'd like to ask if she knows anything about four other Fuzzies, the ones found by Jack Holloway up Ferny Creek on Friday.' "'Why, yes, they're my Fuzzies, and I was worried about them. Their names are Complex, Syndrome, Id, and Superego.' "'Your Fuzzies, Lieutenant?' "'Well, I took care of them and worked with them. Juan Jimenez and some company hunters caught them over on Beta Continent.' They were kept at a farm centre about five hundred miles north of here, which had been vacated for the purpose. I spent all my time with them, and Dr. Mallon was with them most of the time. Then on Monday night, Mr. Coombs came and got them. "'Mr. Coombs, did you say?' Gus Brannard asked. "'Mr. Leslie Coombs, the company attorney. He said they were needed in Mallorysport. It wasn't until the next day that I found out what they were needed for.' They'd been turned loose in front of that fuzzy hunt, in the hope that they would be killed. She looked across at Coombs. If looks were bullets, he'd have been deader than Kurt Borsch. Why would they sacrifice four fuzzies merely to support a story that was bound to come apart anyhow? Brannard asked. That was no sacrifice. They had to get rid of those fuzzies, and they were afraid to kill them themselves for fear they'd be charged with murder along with Leonard Kellogg. Everybody from Ernst Mallon down who had anything to do with them was convinced of their sapience. For one thing, we'd been using those hearing aids ourselves. I suggested it after getting the idea from Xerxes. Ask Dr. Mallon about it, under veridication. Ask him about the multiordinal polyencephalograph experiments, too. "'Well, we have the Holloway fuzzies placed on Xerxes,' the Chief Justice said. "'We can hear the testimony of the people who worked with them there at any time.' "'Now I want to hear from Dr. Ernst Mallon.' Coombs was on his feet again. "'Your Honours, before any further testimony is heard, I would like to confer with my client privately.' "'I fail to see any reason why we should interrupt proceedings for that purpose, Mr. Coombs. You can confer as much as you wish with your client after this session, and I can assure you that you will be called upon to do nothing on his behalf until then.' He gave a light tap with his gavel, and then said— Dr. Ernst Mallon will please take the stand. End of chapter 14